Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Blind Ambition with Jack Kelly. It's your friend, Rick, from Blind, and today I'm going to introduce you all to Gleb Yushin, who's the co-founder and CTO of Sila Nanotechnologies. Sila is an engineered materials company focused on dramatically improving energy storage to power the world's transition to clean energy. He is also a professor at the Schools of Materials and Engineering at Georgia Tech, and the editor-in-chief of the trade publication, Materials Today. Professor Yushin has co-authored more than 210 U.S. and international patents and patent applications, and more than 180 peer-reviewed publications on nanostructured materials for energy-related applications that have collectively earned more than 20,000 citations. Uh, Thank you for coming on the show, Professor. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> so I, I mean, wow, what a background. I, it, it's the first time that we're going to have an academic, um, an ex, truly an expert of the field. So can you just walk us through your career and how you got to this point? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, so I was born in Russia. And ever since I was a teenager, I've been fascinated by art, science, and innovation. And, uh, you know, <laughs> Soviet Union was very strong in science and art, but weak in the ability to innovate. So after internal debate about choosing between art and science, I decided to study physics in Polytechnic Institute uh, while conducting experiments at the Ofa Institute of the Russian Academy of Sciences. So, um, but <laughs> at the same time, the Soviet Union was collapsing and there was no money left to fix expensive equipment, uh, let alone uh, buy a new one. Um, and without resources, you cannot do experimental science. Um, so what should I do? Um, well, I had a choice between switching my career to from sciences to business or immigrating. And um, I was a top student in my school, and EOFA Institute was the number one place in the Soviet Union to do physics. And because of this, I had good publications, so I thought maybe I have a chance to get into graduate school in other countries, and that could be an adventure. Um, but you know where should I go? So I talked to many scientists, you know, about Asia, mostly Japan, about Europe, mostly Germany, and the U.S. And I learned that the culture in Asia would be maybe too different to adapt, and also learned that Europe at the time was maybe less friendly to immigrants, and there was some sort of invisible ceiling for careers in sciences if you are not native. So the U.S. <laughs> as a land of opportunities and immigrant-friendly country and you know, leader in both science and innovation was um, a natural choice for me, so I moved to America. And um, maybe I should also mention that in the last few years of studying physics, I realized that most of the greatest things in physics were discovered well before I was born. And so the chances for me, I don't know, to get a Nobel Prize were not very high. So um, I wanted to switch to a younger field of materials as it was kind of an intersection between physics, chemistry, electrical engineering. And I also thought materials are a very versatile uh, field um, in the sense that if you deeply understand fundamentals of material science, you can apply your knowledge in literally you know, any other field because you need better materials everywhere. Uh, so I would have more freedom to decide what to do next once I earn my PhD. And this was very appealing. I was always, uh, I want to always broaden my future choices. So I went to NC State and after graduating, I tried to get a job in industry, 
but in 2003 there was a hiring freeze and and so it was almost impossible for me to get a job in all the places that i wanted to work uh in um so essentially nobody wanted me there <laughs> and i didn't want to come back to russia um so what should i do um at NC State, I was taking several business classes, and I thought that maybe building a startup could be another adventure. So, you know, I always wanted to innovate. Uh, so I thought maybe I can get a postdoctoral position in another university, and you know, I could help develop and maybe commercialize some technologies. Um, you know, the salary of a postdoc is maybe one third of what industry pays, but to me that was okay because you know it would broaden my education and my opportunities further. So um, I kind of searched for recent at the time, you know, high impact publications and contacted several professors that uh, led these studies, uh, including Yuri Gagotsi at Drexel University. And so I got a job offer to join his lab and work on unstructured materials for broader range of publications in electrochemistry, gas storage, biology, medicine. Um, and I also started to attend lectures in the Drexel School of Business and talk to entrepreneurs and kind of learn more about startups. Um, and, you know, over three years at Drexel, I co-developed several promising material families and, you know, wanted to license them to start a company with Yuri, with my professor. But, you know, Drexel licensing office was maybe a little bit too slow and sometimes unreasonable. And they seem to have no incentives to do it. Um, so I faced the same question again, you know, what should I do? So at that time, I kind of started to like academia more. And I thought maybe I could apply for a tenure track uh, professor position uh, in another school. And if I get it, maybe I can start from scratch, develop new material technologies and, and do a startup uh, there. And, and that's what I did. Um, I got several offers, including one from Georgia Tech, uh, which I accepted. Um, and it's such a fantastic engineering school with you know outstanding centralized fabrication facilities, outstanding centralized you know, uh, characterization facilities, very collaborative faculty. So you know when I joined Georgia Tech, I started to work on novel and broad developable materials that could significantly improve performance of lithium-ion batteries, but were known to degrade. Um, and maybe I should mention that historically, the battery scientists were you know, experts in physics or electrochemistry but not necessarily in materials. So in my group, we focused on, you know, use the knowledge of material science and facilities available at Georgia Tech and achieved multiple breakthroughs. And at that time, I thought these new materials have a chance to be commercialized. Um, you know, in the meantime, even though I had a desire, I had no experience in the industry or startups. So I was looking for co-founders who had such experience. Um, and I met many people, uh, which is not easy if you're an introvert. And you know, through mutual friend uh, Dan Stengard, I eventually found two amazing co-founders, Alex Jacobs and Jim Berdichevsky. And together we started Scylla and Georgia Tech Technology Incubator and eventually moved to Silicon Valley to grow faster. And you know, by now Scylla grew to almost 400 people. We have over a million of cool electronic devices uh, powered by our technology in the market. Uh, for several years now, we have several automotive contracts, including one which was publicly announced recently um, by Mercedes-Benz. And so, you know, the world is transitioning to this renewable energy and our advanced technologies can power and accelerate such a transition. And that's how I became a CTO, <laughs> I guess.
you know, I, I love that story, Gleb, and, and it's amazing. And you, you, you say it so calmly, but from an outside, you know, perspective, it takes a lot of courage to say, hey, I grew up in a certain country, knowing a certain language, knowing a certain culture, and saying, I'm going to leave and go somewhere completely across the globe to a whole different, you know, country and starting from scratch. And then just 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 going forward and 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 going after your dream. I mean, that's pretty amazing. I mean, that's really kind of the old school American dream story, you know, where an immigrant comes over and really may have not much in their pockets, but they have the chance to do whatever they want to do and succeed. So it's it's just that's a this is like such a great story. Well, thank you. I think when you're young, you're very naive. So you don't know all the challenges you face. <laughs> you know, so. that's that's a good point because part of it, I could say that, hey, you're just being, you know, self-deprecating, but there is some validity to it because when you're young, you really like, yeah, you think you're gonna live forever, you're indestructible, <laughs> right? And maybe that's that's a good thing too, that you do it when you're young. Because you yeah, don't maybe- realize, like, all right, what could go wrong? Yeah, and in that aspect, there was a lot of luck involved. So uh-huh. I didn't apply for multiple schools. I applied to only to a single school and was lucky to be accepted, but I didn't know I was lucky. Um, you know, I applied to several positions at universities and competitions is very tough. It's like you have two, maybe 100, 300 applicants for a single position, but you kind of apply and, you know, eventually maybe you get it. <laughs> and then you start a company and eventually you realize that you need a lot of uh, time and funding, but, you know, you, you're naive. You don't know that you need that. And But if you were told in advance, maybe you wouldn't start it in the first place. So naivety sometimes helps. <laughs> I, I like it because I wonder if you sat down with somebody and said, hey, I'm looking to do, you know, create these batteries that's going to be good for the environment. And then they would list off all the challenges you're going to confront. You may have just said, I'm not going to do this. This is nuts. I'll just be a professor. It's much exactly, easier. Exactly. Exactly. This, right? <laughs> exactly. That. Although I bet there are some days where the professor is like, oh gosh, I should have just stick to academia, right? Mm-hmm. Where the, the day-to-day is just must be so challenging. How did you manage that transition from academia to industry? Um, you know, the the inner workings of having to manage other folks, right? To um, build out entire research and development and other kind of GNA business function departments um, to have a functioning kind of corporation. Did you find it easy, challenging? Did you have like a great kind of personal board of directors to help you along? Uh, definitely not easy. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Jack, I feel, to be honest, I feel that sometimes people in academia get detached from reality. They don't mm-hmm. consult for industry. Uh, they don't understand what is industry relevant and useful, what is not. Uh, they get the ideas, you know, what is important from papers published in prestigious scientific journals and written by other professors. And so, um, <laughs> and so, you know, um, and then they write their own papers or proposals and these get peer reviewed by other professors uh, who may also have no clue. And so creating a bubble, um, you know, and professors are very rational human beings. They, you know, if they evaluated by how many uh, grants they bring to universities, how many papers they publish in top scientific journals, so how many citations these articles get, 
they naturally optimize for that rather than you know working on what would be most useful for industry or maybe people. And so for me, working for a startup that needs to produce commercial products with good market fit, um, you know, you know, outcompete many companies that are maybe a thousand times larger in size was a little bit of breath of fresh air because I could see much more clearly where the lack of kind of broad fundamental understanding was particularly painful or where novel technical approaches you know, could be very impactful. So I could focus on this in my academic studies. And you know, at the same time, I could work at Scylla and you know, create something valuable, something tangible for many people, you know, help environment uh, contribute to getting the manufacturing industry back to US. And, but it's definitely not easy. And um, I have to delegate, have to balance uh, many things. I have to rely on a lot of support. So for many years now, I had a reduced appointment at Georgia Tech. And now I'm in a partial leave of absence from, from the university. So I'm, I'm very grateful to my colleagues, to my you know, school chair, Natalie, our dean, you know, our executive vice president of research and Georgia Tech president for giving me this opportunity, flexibility to contribute to both. Um, and certainly uh, family support is very important. So definitely not easy, but, you know, I somehow manage. <laughs> hey, professor, you, you've painted a, a great picture for us to kind of understand the industry, the, the challenge that Sela is coming in to solve. Uh, can we take a step back and, and, and try to dive deeper into your role at the company? I mean, is it your primary responsibility, would you say, to kind of be the scientific mastermind, to come up with the concepts, or are you doing more overseeing of other technologists and more kind of validating um, their kind of hypotheses or ideas or, or, or concepts? Kind of what is that balance there? I mean, a little bit of everything, you know, success of seal of our company depends on our ability to innovate and innovation is not easy, especially in you know, heavy industries where many factories moved overseas in the last three decades. So not only you need to invent something particularly valuable, but you also need to turn invention into massive commercial success and it takes a large team to do it. So, you know, in a company like ours, uh, CTO is broadly responsible for successful innovations. So you know, my responsibilities include, for example, you know, creating a pipeline of new technologies and, and future products, um, ensuring that our current products perform really well in applications and, and don't face major barriers you know, to overcome for the adoption, that our customers and partners see value in working with Scylla, but also ensuring that our technologies can be scaled to very large volumes economically. So that is like capital expenses, CapEx, uh, operational expenses, OPEX, uh, become you know, very low at global scale. So the company can build factories and expand you know, rapidly. And then, you know, as the company grows, the, the job for all executives, including myself, is to work together to outline the goals, you know, prioritize them, ensure alignment, um, you know, to achieve those goals. And, you know, there are multiple levels of alignment. There is alignment between individuals working on the project, um, alignment between various departments, um, you know, but also between our company and our various partners. So to do that, you have to uh, ensure transparency and clear communications um, so that ideally everyone in the company should know why we set particular goals, why we prioritize them in a certain way, and how you know, their particular work is contributing to these goals. So simplicity and clarity of the goals are also very important. And then, you know, um, you know, 
to be successful in achieving these ambitious goals and produce new to the world technologies, you know, CTO and ideally everyone in the company needs to have this ability to recognize talent and recognize good ideas and be able to amplify them. So you know, this requires both technical and kind of emotional skills and also a good company culture. Um, and, and one indication of a good culture when, is when you know, everybody is focused on the success of the mission. Everyone is eager to work very, very hard you know, on the best ideas you know, for the common goals. So, um, so overall, again, uh, multiple things you know, contribute to kind of building this well-lubricated innovation engine you know, within the company that results in building factories, producing products that ideally impact you know, billions of people positively. Um, and to do that, I have to hire great people, amplify the ideas, you know, focus on the highest impact projects and, and achieve good alignment between technical and, and business goals. I appreciate that insight because, you know, Jack and I, we've interviewed dozens. I think this actually might be our 100th episode. So it's, it's kind of an extra bonus for you, Professor. Uh, but <laughs> Thank you. as we've interviewed these CTOs of mostly software companies, a lot of them, they got into tech at an early age because, you know, their parents or um, a, a close family or friend member uh, got them their first computer and they were coding at an early age. And so you could see this like nice through line from that kind of personal life and that personal history to where they are today in terms of being, you know, CTOs at some of the most popular or most valuable startup companies. And some of them have told us, you know, I, I really got into software engineering coding uh, because I loved the practical aspect of actually writing the code um, and kind of having an idea, writing the code and, and seeing it out there live. And some of them have confided in us during this show that um, they really regret, you know, being a CTO where they're coding less often or, you know, they're now finding themselves as business executives focusing more time on establishing processes or, um, you know, they're spending maybe half or more of their work week uh, trying to recruit talent to join their companies, uh, especially in the last year when it was so challenging to, to find that right tech talent. Mm -hmm. So I, I love your perspective in terms of, it, it seems like you're able to kind of combine that passion and that vision that you know, someone might typically expect of a CEO, right? That's responsible for kind of rallying the troops and making sure everyone's on board. But because Sila is so technology focused that it, it seems like it, it's come on your shoulders um, as a CTO, which is uh, quite a unique background. Well, in general, I would say um, in hardware technologies, in heavy industries, you know, technology is moving slower. So it's a little bit of a marathon. It's not a sprint. Uh, I mean, it could be sprint, you know, once at a time, but, you know, we've been working on this for 12 years now. And so, you know, software companies typically develop much faster. So you have to learn how to step up much sooner. And in many cases, maybe you're not ready. And in, in our case, we had 12 years to mature, to understand what the job is. Uh, and to learn how to to collaborate uh, effectively, and so I find my job very fulfilling. Um, so I wouldn't change it for any other. <laughs> just just for the audience, and when I say that, I really mean for myself. 
what if to visualize, you know, your product you have out, do you still, do you have products that are you're delivering to clients or, or still kind of working to perfect it? It's both. So okay. you know, innovations, they never stop. So we have you know, millions of devices in the world, in the wild. Um, you know, in the meantime, we're working for generation materials. We're working for new product families. So innovation never stop because once you stop, it's kind of over time, the company dies. You know, um, I would say that in general, you know, software companies, they grow much faster, but they also can die quite fast. Um, so in hardware, takes longer time to develop, but, you know, you have a longer um, kind of run rate. Uh, <laughs> um, and so, but in the meantime, if you don't innovate, eventually you will die. Um, you know, there are many uh, large players that, you know, see this coming and they should see, you know, the, the new technology, new innovation coming, and they don't take necessary steps to, to change technology or um, to innovate in the field. And eventually they die. It might take, like, instead of a few years, it might take decades for them to die, but it happens. And so you have to prevent that. Uh, so definitely innovations never stop with Sila. And, and to go back to with the, the product, are, are there some examples that we would know of that your batteries are in a car or in some, wherever? You know, can... oh, definitely. Um, so there are several devices uh, out there, you know, one was publicly announced is Whoop 4.0. It's a fitness tracker, quite a remarkable fitness tracker. Highly recommended. I'm sorry, what um, is it, you know, Professor? It's Whoop Whoop 4.0. Okay. <laughs> it's a it's a fitness tracker. Um, there are other devices that you know we are not allowed to disclose, but they are out there in the market. Uh, Mercedes Benz announced they um, are going to be first to use our technology in their vehicles, and they will start with a G wagon. Uh, it's a quite a, a marvelous car. It's expensive though, <laughs> but you know, over time they're going to kind of use this latest technology you know, and translate it to other vehicles, maybe initially premium vehicles and eventually like mass market. Well, I guess you know, with Mercedes, all vehicles are slightly premium. Um, but you know, we are working with multiple other companies, and again, you know, we have additional contracts which I'm not allowed to disclose, and we will disclose over time. Um, but you know, we the target the whole electric vehicle market uh, so we kind of don't discriminate it's just you know when you develop technology earlier you know it's maybe slightly more expensive and so more affordable maybe in luxury cars and then you go to larger scale so your technology becomes cheaper and then you go to premium vehicles and eventually when the technology works really well and you know the cost becomes you know very small there is economy of scale but also continuous innovation to drive the cost down then you know you can target mass market, um, and so you have you know lots of cars on the roads, uh, ultimately powered by technology. How competitive is this space? Are there a large number of other entities similar to yourself, or is it a very small group that are working on this project, this type of project? I mean, battery field is very competitive, definitely, mm -hmm. and, and it's a good thing. I think competition. Is great. Uh, you know, if there's no competition, there is no progress. And sometimes, you know, when large companies become, you know, quasi-monopolist, uh, they stop being innovative because nobody's pushing them. And then they, they die because there is a young startup <laughs> developing something very fast uh, and people are young and hungry and they have to compete. They have to out-compete out this, you know, large you know, uh, company and, and, they, and they do it successfully. 
And so I think competition is very healthy. It's very, very good. And so to me, I wish there would be more companies uh, started in this space uh, because we do need more innovations. Hmm. And there is so much we can do. You know, with, you know, our first product is the Anode. Uh, we are developing other product families, but it would be great that you know more companies would, would join the field. And you know, there are also lots of uh, ideas out there how to to uh, produce or manufacture batteries differently. And you know, Tesla, for example, um, you know, pushing the envelope. Uh, they are developing not only um, you know the best batteries, but they're also developing the, the best way to to produce batteries. Um, you know, at least they put a lot of effort into that. So it's, it's well, very... well, the best until now. Yeah, you're going to overcome them, I think, right? Is well, that... we, <laughs> yeah, we, we are suppliers to to battery companies, and so you know, companies like Tesla would be our customers. Gotcha. Um, you know, so we see them as as our partners. Uh, we are not competitors in in any possible way, and I wish you know. Companies like Tesla and other EV makers would be more successful because we do need to accelerate the transition you know, as fast as we can. And so the more push uh, to do that, you know, the faster it's going to happen and the faster it's going to be the positive impact on the environment, uh, which is you know, what we're all trying to achieve. I, mean, I, I want to kind of focus in there, the last bit that you said, right? Because it, it's a very lofty ambition or it's a very admirable goal in terms of gosh like changing how the world uses energy and making the earth a greener planet it, it's very audacious and i want to go back to you know 2012 when you started sila um when you have such like a ambitious and kind of I, i'm just gonna say it like a little crazy goal to, to like to do it um, and and you need the technology, and maybe the like the technology or the world just isn't there yet. How do you get folks to invest? Right? Did you have to rely on Georgia Tech's incubator program? Were there kind of government grants that you're able to, um, you know, benefit from? Was it your own personal capital? Um, like, how does some how does someone get started in kind of these like hard sciences, hard tech, when, you know, the eventual product or the eventual service is going to be years, maybe even a decade out? Yeah, maybe if you're a software engineering professor, maybe you can buy your own computer. But right. <laughs> if you work in material science, you you know, professor salaries may be healthy, but it's not that great. So you can't afford all this expensive equipment. So we definitely had a lot of support and it was not easy. You know, um, most investors did not believe in EV revolution. Most people predicted that even by 2050, there will be only a very small fraction of electric vehicles. And so you know, we had to find much more visionary investors who thought that this EV revolution is coming, electrification is coming and, and they would bet on us. And, you know, I would definitely say that Georgia Tech helped a lot with incubator space. It was very convenient for me. Um, and the team, we had access to this fascinating, you know, great facilities at Georgia Tech. And also government helped a lot. So we received uh, grants from, you know, small grant from NASA, but, you know, much larger grant from RPE, you know, over $3 million. Uh, that was instrumental for our success because, you know, what I learned over the years that things take longer. And so, you know, and it was much harder, you know, I, again, I was maybe naive initially, I thought, you know, maybe we'll get to where we are now in maybe four or five years, and it took us 12 years. 
So, you know, without government support would be much tougher to, to get here. And so I'm definitely very grateful for that. But, you know, I would say in the last, you know, two, three years, I think the world we changed. And so now everybody believes in electric vehicles and people just put in different bets, you know, how fast this revolution is going to happen. And, you know, because of the supply chain challenges, because of the war in Ukraine, uh, this revolution is happening much, much faster, you know. If countries in Europe thought, well, they will electrify by 2040, 2050, now they want to do it much, much sooner, maybe by 2030. And so, um, and now it becomes easier to raise funding and we were lucky to exist for a long time because, you know, we are kind of the best in class. We have, you know, very healthy funding. Uh, we have amazing team and we have the best technology. And, and so kind of makes it easier for us now, but initially it was definitely very tough. And if I thought, that you know we would have to raise um you know a billion dollars you know and it will take us 12 years to get here i thought that would be completely unrealistic i, I wouldn't even start it i would i would definitely doubt myself um so yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's really interesting that you say that because as rick was alluding to you know we have on on the show so many ctos where within a year or two sometimes boom they write this great code and before you know it you have vcs just throwing money at them this is like you know a few years back now that's really not happening as much and all of a sudden you have this great unicorn business but now you like as you're talking about it years of just going through it and not knowing when it's going to hit and how do you have that mental toughness to to say wow i'm right it's not only a marathon, it's like a marathon, it's a tough mutter, it's a decathlon all mixed in together because this is kind of the long game, right? How do you keep mentally strong to say, hey, I'm going to keep persevering and this is going to could take another bunch of years? <laughs> um, it's, it's a difficult question to answer. I think, you know, if you have an amazing team, it, it helps a lot. Uh, mm. I mean, I would say the life is the marathon as well. Like you don't want to live your life in, in a few years. And so to me, I see my job, you know, as a lifelong adventure. So, you know, I, I try to enjoy it as much as I can. Uh, and I enjoy it quite a lot. Um, and sometimes when you work the hardest, you still, you know, they make the largest impact and, you know, you, you feel the happiest overall. Um, so this, you know, small wins um, help a lot, you know, win customers, win, you know, figuring out how things work, uh, overcoming challenges are very fulfilling, um, you know, but they're not easy. Uh, and so you have to find um, a place where you feel comfortable and I feel very comfortable where I am. Well, I wouldn't say, actually, I don't feel comfortable where I am in the sense that, you know, there is always a pressure to deliver. And that's great because I think when people are feeling too comfortable, it's, it's also bad. Uh, there was a kind of <laughs> famous experiment, uh, I think, in Japan in somewhere in the 80s um, when, you know, a, a owner of the company gave a CTO a credit card without limit, with a limited budget, and told him to take as much vacation as he wants, you know, to buy whatever his family wants so that he can focus on innovation. And at that time, you know, this um, productivity of the CTO changed dramatically. But you know, with the caveat that it didn't grow, but it dropped instead. Um, and the company still made profits on, on investment uh, due to publicity. But you know, the conclusion is that we all need some pressure to become better version of ourselves and, and contribute to society in a more meaningful way. 
And maybe I will wish that I would challenge myself even more when I was younger. You know, you know, <laughs> you know, you have the highest IQ, the highest intellectual potential when you're early 20s. And, you know, I think it's very important to regularly do something useful for yourself or others that is outside your comfort zone. So, you know, taking the small steps, uh, but, but this is important. You know, I like how you talked about enjoying the journey, because I think it's very relevant in particular. And Rick, tell me, tell me if this makes sense for the, blind, the folks on the blind platform, because oftentimes, you know, they're doing well, they're making a lot of money, but yet they're just kind of, I got to get to that next level. And it almost feels from the outside, they're not really enjoying the journey because they want to get to that next step and they're aggravated and they're, you know, and right. Like they're mad almost and angry and frustrated. And why is this happening? But like your mindset is saying, Hey, I'm going to enjoy each step of the way. It's not hitting that ultimate goal that I'm going to say, yes, this is it. It's really each little small victory you're saying, right? Like celebrate each little step that you succeed. And that's, that's right. where it comes in. That's the fun. That's 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 what gets you. Sounds like that's what keeps you motivated. Each incremental increase that you and make so, the battery a little better and a little better. That's where you just you you take joy in that, right? And 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 you appreciate it. That's right. And I think you know a startup is even more special because it's growing over time. So your job description changes all the time, you know, and so you have to level up. You know, well, if you're a professor, if you're just a professor, you kind of, you know, you're doing innovative things, you know, creative things, you know, you discover a new science, um, but the way you do it and what you do are similar in the sense that you, you know, write proposals, write grants, uh, get funding, hire students, uh, you um, publish papers, you do research, uh, you know, you give presentations and you kind of repeat it over and over while in a startup your job changes and i think maybe it's also make it much more exciting uh, much more exciting path now is there i mean is there a little bit of danger in that kind of pathway it, it, you know my understanding of you know pharma and biotech they often have to invest so much capital mm -hmm. in terms of you know the research and then obviously the you know the the different stages of development before they get that, you know, FDA approval or whatever it might be, you know, is, is there a pressure for you where um, you have to show certain advancements uh, over time in order to unlock the next kind of tranche of funding to be able to continue your vision? Or are you um, able to kind of operate more independently in a sense? I think it's quite similar. And I guess, you know, um, Rick, I would say like pressure is good. Pressure is good for humans and pressure is good for companies. Without pressure, there is no progress or very slow progress. Right. So uh, I enjoy it and I think it's very positive uh, thing for the company of any size. So you have to have it. And again, as I mentioned, if you become monopolist and you know, become too lazy, that's really bad for you, but it's also bad for, you know, for humanity. So the pressure is good. You know, I like competition, I like to win, and I like to work hard to do that. Um, and so, um, and I think it's it's only a positive thing to do. And it's also good for, from investors' perspective, right? They don't risk, you know, large funding right away. They have to invest slowly, gradually. And so they see where it's going. And if sometimes companies face, um, you know, huge challenge that might be fundamentally impossible to overcome, 
there is sometimes scientific risks. And when they started, there was a lot of scientific risks. And you know, if you're in, in science, sometimes you don't know how long it's going to take for you to figure things out. You know, at some point you figure out science and you risks become maybe more engineering risks or more scale-up risks. Um, and so these are maybe more definite and you can maybe plan, you know, how long it will take to overcome this. Um, but, you know, this is the path we choose for ourselves and, and it's a good path. I, I, I'm curious, I kind of want to take advantage of our little office hours here. Um, you speak that there has to be this kind of like inner sense and this willingness to kind of basically bet on yourself. Do you have any advice for some of the professionals, the technologists who are listening that might not have developed that grit themselves, you know, that are not willing to kind of take as many risks as you did, right? In, in terms of your life, moving across the world, uh, betting yourself, betting on yourself in terms of applying to just a few uh, positions available at and some of the top universities and actually earning it and gaining it. Um, what would you say to, you know, maybe a student of yours or maybe an entry-level professional or, or, or just, a, you know, someone that is not quite there yet in their, their career? Um, how do they get there and how do they get to kind of where you are? I think small successes uh, help along the way. Uh, it kind of becomes a snowball over time. And so, um, and so there's some skills that kind of you need to develop. And I think tenacity is not one of the skills you can develop. You have to kind of grow it naturally. You cannot put an effort to develop tenacity. I mean, maybe you can. Uh, I don't know. Um, I didn't think about it before. Um, but I think, you know, there are some other skills that, you know, young scientists, engineers can, can develop that would be very helpful, you know, when they grow their careers. You know, many of them are very smart and they go technically very deep. But sometimes they don't pay enough attention improving their human interaction skills, their presentation skills. You know, some of the hardest working people I know and some of the smartest don't put sufficient effort to making their points clear and understood easily and dramatically minimizing their impact and, and slowing down their growth. Um, you know, and, and one opportunity to improve presentation skills, for example, could be working for a consulting firm where kind of crisp presentation is a requirement. And so I have a scientist in my team who did that, and his presentations are excellent. You know, his hypothesis, assumptions, conclusions are always very clear to very diverse audience and making his presentation very impactful. And, and similarly, I think, you know, some of the smartest and, and you know, hardest working people I know don't put sufficient efforts into building rapport and social relationship with colleagues. And it may negatively impact their collaborations, you know, negatively impact their, their progress overall. So technical excellence is, is very, very important, uh, but it's often not sufficient. And, you know, I wish I put more efforts to develop this kind of human skills sooner. They make huge difference. And, and if you're an immigrant, it's even more important because you come from different culture and you don't understand the new country. So you have to put an effort. Um, and maybe, maybe another aspect is that I think, you know, many young people are not asking sufficient number of uh, why questions especially if they're not related to their kind of narrow field of work. And, you know, they're often not acknowledging, you know, what they don't know, and they're not putting enough effort to fill these gaps in knowledge, even, you know, when this uh, knowledge is critical uh, for fulfilling their dreams. You know, when being challenged, they often say something like, oh, this is outside my pay grade, you know, become defensive, uh, saying something like, oh, it's naive to think you can get this knowledge, it's so valuable, nobody's willing to share. 
or I have my manager or my city or my parents or whoever to think about it. But, you know, if you limit your curiosity, if you don't allow your kind of curiosity muscles to develop, uh, then you will limit your, your growth opportunity. Um, and so um, the idea is not just to have a growth mindset, but kind of leverage your curiosity and be actively looking to expand your horizons, kind of be unsatisfied with information and get passively. So, um, and I noticed that people who ask a lot of why questions and learn how to get answers to these questions, not only grow much faster professionally and personally, but also develop this ability to see the big picture what is going on, being able to predict the future better, and if you predict uh, the positive change that is likely to happen, then you can focus on uh, how to help others to get to this better future sooner. And that's amazing career opportunity, but also it helps you to keep going because you know this is the future and you have to get there. And so I think it helps with um, kind of tenacity a little bit because you know it's, it's coming and you just have to put more effort into making it happen. Wow. Uh, I think yeah, Rick and I are just, just absorbing this thing. We got to get our act together. <laughs> we got to catch up here. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's so funny because as a, I, I, I identified so much with what you said, because as a kid, um, you know, I was the annoying brat that often asked my parents, like, why, why, why? Um, and it, it almost just become, it became like a common refrain in, the Chen household and you know my parents would be like oh I'll, I'll tell you later or you know like not now and I, I, I just taking a second to reflect on why some cultures or some societies might be so keen to um, kind of almost discourage that curiosity that you have as a kid and I, I, I think that's what almost traps some adults today right where they somehow over time lose that intellectual curiosity or that willingness to kind of challenge why things are the way they are, right? I, I think that's kind of the the beauty and the, the wonder of San Francisco or the Silicon Valley just generally, even beyond the Bay Area in terms of, it, it seems that that magic or that ethos is still in the air, right? You can almost like feel it in terms of, um, you know, folks that are saying, you know, why do we in 2023 still have batteries that are mined, you know, by hand, the, those elements that you have to use? Mm -hmm. um, why don't we have, you know, driverless cars? Why are there still car accidents? Um, and it's those people that are kind of like pushing the boundaries that I think we could use a lot more of. And I, I really appreciate your advice in terms of saying, hey, you know, like we can actually just capture that, right? If you ask those questions and you surround yourself with folks that, you know, are like-minded or able to answer those questions, uh, perhaps you can really advance or level up your career faster. I mean, if you think about it in the last, you know, all the progress that we face now, you know, I know have been done in the last 500 years. And I think that's because people develop the scientific approach and ask a lot of why questions, right? Acknowledge, okay, they don't know this, you know, how do we get these answers? And, you know, that's what makes science very honorable uh, and very uh, inspiring profession to, to join. Uh, and also education, because you have to spread the knowledge. 
um, but it, it powers innovation and you know without innovation there is no progress um, so it is very special I think you know because many I think many challenges many many horrors that the world's facing now is honestly because of insufficient knowledge that we have around about our world or insufficient education that people maybe don't have this knowledge and you have to spread it more equally and so um, you know I think spreading education around the world and you know more broadly in the US make it much more uh, accessible to people are so critical for the nation and, and for the world and so investment there are, are really are really important right I mean can, can you give us a little preview in terms of what's next for you are, are you going to still return back to Atlanta and teach or are you primarily focused on SELA nowadays um I mean, I live kind of one step at a time. So at the moment, I'm focused on SILA. Um, and so I enjoy it very much. Um, so we'll see, you know, what is going to happen in the future. <laughs> so, but I'm committed to the company. And so I cannot imagine myself, you know, outside SILA, you know, for the rest of my life. Um, you know, if, if things happen, you know, I will probably start something new from scratch. I don't think just being a professor would be sufficiently kind of uh, satisfying for me. That's, that's it. You have that entrepreneurial bug now. <laughs> yes, that's right. And I think also, you know, many people can be fantastic professors, but, you know, only a few can, can lead kind of technology companies, um, you know. So... You know, once you get this knowledge, once you get the skills, it's kind of would be a waste not to use them in the future. Absolutely. Gosh, I, I, I really appreciate you, uh, Professor, for coming on the show and, and kind of painting this picture in terms of what one needs to do to start their own company, make that transition from academia into industry, uh, but also kind of more generally betting on yourself, right? And, and, and keeping that intellectual curiosity uh, because it can often advance your career faster, which I, I think is kind of the magic words that you said for our audience. So thank you, Professor. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah, of course. And maybe it's not just curiosity. I think it's also, you know, you have to like prioritize what you do because, you know, sometimes 20% of the effort give you 80% of the results. You have to figure out, you know, where it is 20% and maybe double down on that. Um, and you also have to be thoughtful about what, not only what to do, but also what not to do, you know, how to invest your time. You know, you know, are you going to join this company or not? Are you going to join this mission or not? You know, maybe. And sometimes if you make very good bets at early stages, uh, then you can propel your careers. And if you make bad bets and you bet with your time, mostly it may leave scars and discourage you from doing something greatly in the future. So, um, but with curiosity as a driver, I, I agree. That's a good reminder. Thank you, Professor. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> That's it for the Blind Ambition. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.